before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of podcasts including interviews with Dominique Boise-Gilliard, an author of Rethinking Incarceration, A Place at the Table, featuring Maggie Kane, and Amy Julia Becker, author of White Picket Fences. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's podcast is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for Love, Mercy, Do Justice. He's an activist, speaker, and author. Dominique Gillard was named the Evangelical Covenant Church's 40 Under 40 Leaders to Watch, and the Huffington Post named him one of the Black Christian leaders changing the world. He is the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. We'll get to that part of the conversation later on. Dominique, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be with you and your community today. Well, you are in Chicago, probably enjoying a beautiful summer day there. But uh, for those that aren't familiar with your story, tell us a little bit more about you. So I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I am the middle of three children to uh, Derek and Catherine. My father uh, currently works for the Health and Human Service Department for the federal government, but he previously worked for the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is an organization that Dr. King founded during the Civil Rights Movement. And my mom um, recently got appointed as the first woman of color ever to hold a superintendent position within our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. So I jokingly say I took the best out of both of them and discerned my vocational calling um, as somebody who really uh, weds uh, this cause and concern for the least of these and civil rights and the dignity of all people and the pastoral call. So as an ordained clergy myself, um, I really, uh, it's funny how God kind of extracted both of that, that out of both of them and kind of placed that call in my life. 
now uh, from Atlanta, went to school in Atlanta, and went to school in Tennessee. Is that correct? Yes, I uh, went to undergrad in Atlanta. Then I did my first master's in the northeast uh, portion of Tennessee and up in the Appalachian Mountains region. And then I came and did uh, my second master's, my MDiv here in Chicago at North Park Theological Seminary. I, after finishing seminary, I stayed a long, stayed on at the seminary and taught for a year and a half, and then took a pastoral call out to Oakland, California, where I served out there for five and a half years, serving on staff of two multi-ethnic uh, covenant churches. And then I came back to Chicago to take this national role with the Evangelical Covenant Church as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation. Well, tell us, tell us more about Love, Mercy, Do Justice. So Love, Mercy, Do Justice is one of the our denomination's uh, five mission priorities. Um, and these mission priorities are uh, different um, articulations of our faith that help us to love uh, and bear witness to our faith uh, throughout the world. And so really love, mercy, do justice is kind of the domestic manifestation of love your neighbor. And we have a partnering uh, mission priority called serve globally. That really is the international manifestation of love your neighbor. So we have five different mission priorities and those priorities um, really help us to have a comprehensive call uh, to the world as a denomination. Now, I imagine that you have to have extra large business cards and your official name <laughs> tag for for your work is really long because this title, Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation, uh, take us into the day in the life of, of your role. Yeah, so the day, uh, day to day, um, one of the things I love about my role is just how diverse it is. Um, I do everything from write curriculum to create experiential learning opportunities to actually traveling to one of our 900 churches throughout the country and doing preaching, teaching, and training on the ground in regards to um, how they can more faithfully make connections between faith, race, and discipleship, or within their work of community development, or expanding or starting new ministries like prison ministries, after-school ministries, um, ministries to uh, foster children, um, any anything in that realm where they're trying to get out and embody their faith in a way that tangibly makes change in their community as they try to seek the peace and the prosperity of their uh, city um, is really what I do. And so it can look a lot of different ways, which is something that really excites me about the role. Well, and clearly your work um, and, and the work you do day to day is very evident in and not just the curriculum you write, but also um, this recent book that you've written. So in February, um, released uh, Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. Um, and you don't need my endorsement, but as a student of history, um, I was captivated by your ability to, uh, to convey a very difficult and unfortunate and intentionally overlooked part of U.S. history, this transitioning out of slavery and into uh, re-enslaving Black Americans through the justice system. And, and you compounded this difficult history into the present reality 
Um, and, and you've brilliantly penned a, a theological awakening for Christ followers to, to rethink how we see and interact with neighbor. neighbor. And um, I was hoping we might kind of settle in for a few minutes into the uh, historical framework you've laid out. You wrote, um, thus the same racialization that appraised blacks as subhumans during slavery now criminalized blackness after the 13th Amendment and led to uh, blacks being legally re-slaved. Yet again, the law made it permissible for elite whites vested in the depraved system to get filthy rich off the blood, sweat, and dehumanization of subjugated blacks. Tell me about, um, tell me about the motivation behind um, developing a comprehensive history um, that you've written on. Yeah, well, I always like to say that lament, racialized lament seems unwarranted without context. And I think a lot of what happens when we have conversations about the history of race in our nation is that we just lack the context because we've been miseducated by our school system. And and I, I want to place the burden there because I think a lot of times we as individuals take the burden on ourselves and say like, oh, well, I should have known this. And yeah, after a certain point, you know, there there should be some cracks in the... <laughs> cracks in kind of your historical narrative that should cause you to do a little bit more digging. Um, but the reality is that, that our K through 12, and I would even say K through undergrad uh, curriculum fundamentally fails us and miseducates us in regards to U.S. history in particular. Um, I always like to give a talk uh, and I have this screenshot that I have that kind of snapshots of what we learn about black history. And it's basically kind of a little tongue in cheek, but 246 years of slavery, things got better, but they weren't all the way fixed. So you have the emergence of the civil rights movement. Thank God for Dr. King. He almost fixed all our problems, but once he was assassinated, we had riots in the streets. So we clearly see that everything wasn't fixed. You had the black power movement, but then Obama came and thank God we finally made it racially. And, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, especially today. But I think about two years ago, there were people who were really believing that narrative. Um, and I think what's really critical about that narrative is that it, it, it allows us to believe that there are these there were these seasons of reprieve uh, or these seasons in which racism and its intensity and it, the systemic nature of it kind of lightened up for a while. And I think that fallacious picture allows us to actually understand racism in a way that is not historically rooted or accurate. So I always like to really focus on the kind of 89-year period of time from when the Emancipation Proclamation is passed to 1954, when a lot of people start to think about the civil rights movement. During that 89-year period of time, most people have little to no comprehension of what was happening with Black people in particular. But I think the broader failing of our uh, U.S. history is that it minimizes the contributions of people of color across the board and women as well. Um, and it really is the narrative, the historical narrative of the contributions of white middle class or upper class men exclusively. And what that does is it taints our understanding of what our nation is, who has, uh, who has kind of made it what it is, and how do we 
truly understand the mosaic nature of the U.S. Um, today in the midst of having conversations about diversity, multiculturalism, um, and all these different things. So uh, to kind of root back to your question real quick, um, one of the things that like I always baffles me is that you have them... Um, you have the Reconstruction era starting in 1865. When Reconstruction ends in 1877 because of the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, most people are shocked to realize that you come out of a system in 1865 where the law made it illegal for you to know how to read or write. And 12 years later, at the end of Reconstruction, you have 1,400 African-Americans who had held political office in the South. So you go from literally not being able to have the legal right to learn how to read and write, and 12 years later, you have 1,400 representatives throughout this region, the southern region of the country, who have held political offices. It shows that it's never been about Black intelligence, Black um, ability, but it's always been about equal access. Well, this is a, it's a disparaging history here. Um, there is such a tremendous disconnect from what we are taught and what we um, acknowledge. And, and I think there's a, a guilt factor. I think there is a faux innocent factor when it comes to, to white Americans accepting um, this, this aspect of history that, that have, as you've noted, is, is just really not covered. Um, so, why? Why do you think we, we try not to remember this part of our history? Because I think it, it, it messes with and kind of challenges our notion of American exceptionalism and rugged individualism and, uh, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It, it really challenges the heart of all of those meta narratives that uh, we rely on this kind of mythology of the US and it really calls us to reckon with the fact that wealth um, and excess in this nation is directly connected to the exploitation of people of color throughout the history and legacy of this nation um, and you know I spend a lot of time talking about it in the black community but this isn't something that is you know, exclusive to the black community. Um, but I think part of what we have really not reckoned with within um, kind of what you're talking about historically is when we think about crime and we think about lawlessness in our nation, we've been socialized to think about black and brown bodies. But if we really want to have an authentic conversation about lawlessness in our nation today, we have to have a conversation about the lawless, the legacy of lawlessness within white elected officials. And so to give you a kind of example of what I mean, um, the governor of Mississippi in 1907 um, says this, if it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched. It will be done to maintain white supremacy. So you have a governor of a state in 18, uh, 1907 saying that, and then you fast forward up into the civil rights movement, and you know all the kind of craziness that Bull Connor would say routinely, but uh, there's a quote from him in 1958 saying, damn the law, down here we make our own law, as the public safety commissioner, and he would frequently get on the radio in um 
in his state and say, I heard that a black family is moving into a white community tonight. We should expect bloodshed. And so as a public safety commissioner, you're not saying, oh, we need to go beef up the truce to protect and make sure that there's peace and stability within the community. You're saying these Negroes have forgotten their place in society and people are going to remind them. So we should expect that violence is going to transpire tonight. And so you have that kind of elected kind of legacy. And then he is reinforced by, you know, George Wallace, who is himself standing in the steps of a school resisting a federal order to integrate schools, saying segregation now, segregation today, segregation forever. And what it does is what I think we haven't really taken account of is how this legacy of white elected officials uh resistance to the law, disrespect of the law, and kind of commitment to racial superiority has really allowed a lot of the racial mob violence that we've seen that be so normative throughout our nation to take place. Because essentially, those officials are giving them the wink, say, hey, you go do what you got to do. We're working towards the same end. The law is not going to hold you accountable. And so within that legacy, we get the evolution of what I talk about in the book, and I don't want to talk too long, but the legacy of lynching, which is, for me, in my two cents, the most grotesque violation in our U.S. history textbooks, that lynching is not mentioned anywhere within our K-12 through education, even though we know at the height of lynching, there was a Black person lynched in this nation once every four days. And over a 75-year period of time, there were at least 5,500 Black people who were lynched in our nation. So for that to not even be covered within what we call U.S. history is a gross violation, especially given that lynchings were not only so common, but they also were so popular in that we know that the biggest lynching, spectacle lynching on our U.S. history I think U.S. history had 20,000 people present at it. And so to, to have this kind of racialized violence that we have so well documented, but to exclude it from our narrative of what is U.S. history is intentionally to mislead people. This is textbook revisionist history. I mean, what, what we are taught is, is a revision of what has actually happened. And I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, let's not dwell on the past, let's move forward. But I often remind folks that history reminds us of where we have come from and helps shape where we are going. Um, and history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And the reality is that the facts are that one in four black males born today can expect to spend time in prison during their lifetime. African-Americans are imprisoned six times at the rate of whites. A report from the Department of Justice from a few years back, mind you, found that blacks were three times more likely to be searched during traffic stops compared to white motorists. African-Americans are twice as likely to be arrested and almost four times as likely to be experiencing the use of force during encounters with the police. So as much as we think things have changed, they really do stay the same. Yep. Yep. So black men represent 6.5% of the U.S. population today, but 40.2% of the incarcerated population. And the number projections for Hispanic men is that one in six will spend time behind bars in their lifetime today. 
So race profoundly informs this conversation about incarceration. This podcast is sponsored by Campbell University Divinity School, committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to help you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Jason Duke. Jason began his journey as a history major at Campbell, completed a Master of Divinity degree, and then he and his wife, Lori, went to Turkey for two years as support missionaries. On their return, Jason entered law school with a goal of providing financial platform for further bivocational ministry and mission work. But God had yet another turn in the journey for Jason. After graduating with his Juris Doctor and passing the bar, Jason entered the Marines and now serves as a JAG officer. Sometimes living out your call takes unexpected directions. How might Campbell help you discover or sharpen your call? Campbell University Divinity School offers Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Christian Ministry, and Doctorate of Ministry programs in flexible formats that follow students to have a rich face-to-face classroom experience, even while working or commuting to Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. For more information on our master's and doctoral level programs, visit divinity.campbell.edu. And of course, our podcast is a, a theological dialogue. And the difficult part of this is, um, if we're honest, the church's hands are full of blood. And of course, there are many within the church who, who stood against racism, reaching back as far as... Um, the early history of the church as the church was dealing with this very early on, just in a different form of ethnicity. But for those people um, who, who don't want to grapple with this, the, the reality is that over time, the church has, has fueled um, racism. Um, and this often is couched in, in our politics. And in your book, um, you went after some of the, the recent tactics of um, Franklin Graham and you wrote, Franklin Graham commonly espouses law and order is oversimplified ways that trivialize the pain, suffering, trauma, incarceration, and deaths of those targeted by law and order. Graham frequently makes simplistic statements that seem more political than pastoral. Following the presidential election, Graham said political pundits are stunned. Many thought that Trump, Pence, Ticket didn't have a chance. None of them understood the God factor. While the media scratches their head and tries to understand how this happened, I believe that God's hand intervened. Take us a little bit into that. Well, I think there is this way in which, um, you know, law and order is really deployed as a kind of dog whistle politic today. And so when I have a quote in there, um, I think it's from uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, who says, like, we all know what you mean when you deploy the language of law and order. Um, Law for us, uh, as in the minority community, order for you. Um, And so within this, I think there is this way in which um, rhetoric around law and order, zero tolerance, um, all these things are really fear-based language that makes us believe certain things about our criminal justice system that just aren't true. So when you hear um, anyone from Franklin Graham to the president to former presidents or their spouses use some of the dehumanizing language that we use around people who are incarcerated, it's designed to induce fear within us. So when we hear people call 
people, animals or super predators or what not. It makes you think that we have to protect ourselves from them. Us moral people have to keep a boundary of protection from these you know, subhuman people, these animalistic people who don't know how to control themselves. And it really makes you believe that our nation's prisons and jails and detention centers are full of violent offenders. But when you use the most liberal definition of what a violent crime is, only 29% of people who are incarcerated today are there on violent offenses. The vast majority of people who are incarcerated today are there for nonviolent offenses. And though the language that we use for, as politicians and religious leaders oftentimes does not convey that truth, but it's fear, fear mongering language that entices people to cling to zero tolerance, punitive solutions as the only way to keep our society safe and sane. And so, um, the church has been, you know, one of the one of the bigger perpetuators of this and in part just because we have really understood justice, particularly God's justice, as this violent, punitive kind of thing that's full of retribution. And in that way that we think, you know, God is holy and therefore must be uh set apart from sin, we must be holy and set apart from people who commit crimes because in our mind we automatically link crime and sin even though that's not the whole story there are certain crimes quote unquote that are not sins and that's been the case even biblically and i highlight a couple examples of that like say when moses's mother was supposed to put him to death upon being born. Um, and then when the midwives were supposed to put him to death upon his delivery, um, and his sister and Pharaoh's own daughter, they all disobey the law. Therefore, they all commit criminal activities, but that's not sin. So much so that God says that he was pleased with the midwives, so much so that he blessed them with their own families. And so I think we just need to have a little bit more complexity and nuance within our conversations about some of these things. Um, I remember it was, um, this famous quote talks about, we must not forget that everything that Hitler did was legal. And so it's not always a question about legality. We need to ask the question within the church, how neatly can our faith fit within any political party? Um, and that's left or right. Um, there are contradictions to kingdom values within both parties. But I think a lot of times when it comes to our civic engagement as believers, we're more directed by our political parties than what the gospel actually calls us to and summons us to live as people who know that our true citizenship is elsewhere. It never really ceases to amaze me how um, we as a people can oftentimes um, highlight the, quote, sin of others, these things that, um, you know, are, are punishable offenses, but yet we avoid the sin of certainty, the sin of fear, mm -hmm. and the sin of, of control. And really, that's at the root mm -hmm. Of, of what you see and in, in many of not just Franklin Graham, but many who who kind of stand behind political parties to push a, a certain agenda. It's a 
it is a warped Christianization of 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 something that um, I quite frankly uh, think is couldn't be any further from uh, the message and ministry of Jesus. And one of the brilliant aspects of your book is that you're not just laying this history out here. You're not just picking a fight with this group or that group. Um, you're inviting people um, to change the world by the by changing the way they see and talk about others. And in mm-hmm. the book you wrote, uh, this view of black and Hispanic men is ungodly and we must repent. Stigmatizing entire communities is nothing new. In fact, Jesus of Nazareth, and it is believed that nothing good came from, from there. Uh, when black and brown people are universally criminalized, we all suffer. And when the church fails to name, renounce, and reshape this through biblical-based discipleship, we too have blood on our hands. So how do we, how do we begin to to equip our people, to train our people, to disciple our people, to change the way they see and talk about others. Yeah, when it comes to race, I oftentimes like to say, if you take discipleship out of its Christianese language and just like strip it down and look at it in Webster, uh, discipleship is to teach, train, and instruct someone to behave and interact in a certain way. The reality is that historically, the church has not understood race as a form of Christian discipleship. Race has been considered as a secular issue, a social issue, and in the church, we focus on the gospel. Um, And so because of that, we live in a racialized world that has profoundly discipled us to think about race in certain ways. But because we haven't created space within or under the umbrella of Christian discipleship for race to be brought into the conversation, you've simultaneously had people who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, but also have had this worldly discipleship around race that has never been sub, sub, uh, submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that's why you've had this long, enduring legacy of people who are able to own slaves but still identify as Christians, people who were present at lynchings who are still able to identify as Christians, people who were holding the hard and fast line of segregation identifying as Christians, people who showed up at Charlottesville a year ago, turn around and go to church on Sunday believing that they're Christians because they have not had this, the, the church has not created this space to unequivocally say that you cannot believe in racial superiority and be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Like that's antithetical to the gospel. And, but because we have not created a space within the church to say that race is a form of discipleship and we have to recognize quoting romans 12 uh, the ways in which racially we have been conformed to the patterns and the logics of this world and we have not created space for the gospel to penetrate that and interrogate that so that we can be renewed in our thinking about one another so that when we see each other across racial and ethnic lines we don't have this association with pigmentation and criminality. And so the first thing is one naming how we failed to curate space within our ch- the church to name race as a form of Christian discipleship. 
Second is after we name that space, then we have to actually start to deconstruct the ways that the world has taught us to think about race and reconstruct them in Christ-centered ways. Um, that means we have to start to discern the differences between nationalism and the gospel. Um, it also means that we have to start to do the hard work of rerouting this conversation in the image of God. If we truly are all equally made in the image of God, then there can't be this association between race and criminality that we have that ultimately lets us believe that, oh, one in three black men will spend time behind bars, one in six Hispanic men will spend time behind bars. Well, that makes sense because those communities are most prone to criminal activity. We have st seen study after study after study that actually disproven those associations. Like black people are no more likely to use or sell drugs than white people. But the way that we see media images flooded through us, to us, through the news, through movies, all these different things, that association is reinforced over and over and over again. So that when we hear those kind of stats, we're not jarred in the way that we should be. And so the church has to be this space where we can actually re-educate our people because right now we have to look at our system and say that our system is working exactly the way that it was set up to, to produce a kind of blindness, historic blindness, racial blindness around um, what it truly transpires in our nation, but it fits this kind of meta narrative and the gospel has to help us to be liberated from the patterns and the logics of this world in a way that we can go out and truly be ambassadors of reconciliation and the good news. Let's talk about restorative justice because that's ultimately um, what you are inviting people into. And obviously, I mean, we want people to go read the book, so we can't divulge too much information, but um, you talk about that God's justice is restorative and reconciling as opposed to um, isolating. Um, and our, our criminal justice system quarantines people who cause harm, which subsequently harms them through punitive measures and dehumanizing conditions. And the argument you make is theologically restorative justice acknowledges that divine justice entails people being reconciled to God, each other, the community, and themselves. What does this, what does this practically look like? What does this look like uh, for local churches? What does this look like for those that are following Christ? each day within a, a given town or city in the United States? I mean, what it first looks like in regards to the criminal justice system is us believing what we sing and preach every week is Sunday, on, on, uh, at church on Sunday. When we say that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, or there's nothing that we can do that can make us um, beyond God's reach, but when we actually look at returning citizens and the formerly incarcerated, oftentimes if we're honest with ourselves, we think that certain people and certain criminal offenses are irredeemable. So it really presses us to actually acknowledge that we oftentimes sing things that we don't truly mean in our hearts. And we need to actually spend some time before for the cross really examining what that means because Christianity like we are only part of the family of God because of the grace of God um, and Christ died for us while we were yet sinners while we were enemies of God and so that grace that adopted us 
is intended to hallmark our lives, and that grace is supposed to be extended to others even when they violate the confines of covenant community through criminal activity. But we haven't really spent enough time really pressing into that. But then on a, a more restorative nature, it it's like it's asking the question, when there is a violation, how can we be a people who recognize that we are called to move forward together, meaning that for some people, they have misappropriated restorative justice as being soft on crime or something that doesn't really have real consequence. But restorative justice ultimately recognizes that crime is not a violation against just the individual. It's a communal violation. And as a communal violation, there needs to be communal accountability and support throughout the process of reconciliation. Uh, because Restorative justice, just in its name, it assumes that justice has to have something about restoration, about transformation, about reconciliation. And that's at the heart of the gospel. God is in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. And as people who are supposed to be ambassadors of that good news, we have to be intentional about how we go about responding to violations. So that could be anything as small as violations within our congregation. Say a, a youth is caught stealing some some candy from a store uh, that you have in the church. Uh, there's a punitive approach to it, or there's a restorative approach that can actually help the youth name what caused him to do it, why he didn't think that he could come and ask somebody to borrow some money, why he felt that his only um, access to this was through a criminal offense. And through him actually having to walk through this, the what happened, name his part in it, name his motivations, he gets to start to own and identify some of his own triggers that will prohibit him from kind of reverting back to that kind of destructive behavior going forward. And he gets to do it in, within a community of support and accountability who will walk with him as he actually learns from his mistakes. And so when we look at this in a broader kind of school system, we've seen that restorative justice has actually been something that has been um, proven over and over and over again to be more um, effective in actually diverting people from criminal activity going forward than just responding with punitiveness. We've also seen within our broader criminal justice system that restorative justice, when used, has been something that is more favored by um, the victim of crimes, too, because presently um, our system mutes the voice of the victim. So if an event, uh, if a offense happens and um, it goes to court, the victim has no say in what punishment or accountability or reconciliation looks like. There have been a number of cases where, because of mandatory minimums, an offense has occurred and the judge has no choice but to sentence someone very severely and the victim has come forth and actually said, I actually don't want this. This was a violation done against me or my family member. I should have a say in it. I don't want this. And the judge says, well, ultimately, I can't do anything. My hands are tied because that's the way the law is set up. And so restorative justice kind of as a human element to it, but it also says that the real purpose of accountability is to hold someone accountable so that they can be reconciled, so that we can move forward together, not just to dish out punishment. 
by the time this podcast airs, uh, rethinking incarceration will have been out for eight months. Um, what kind of feedback have you gotten from readers? What have you heard from local church pastors? Oh, I've gotten really, really positive feedback. So right now we are already in our fourth printing. Um, and so there's about 11,000 copies in circulation. Um, this has been something that congregation after congregation has told me has fundamentally altered their understanding of our criminal justice system, but also their participation in it through their civic engagement and the ways that they have really um, synchronized law and order and uh, Christianity in ways that really have led them to supporting things that they honestly wouldn't have supported on their own. Um, There was this one really cool story about a church who had someone in their community who was up for parole and they don't have a a prison ministry and they never really kind of been involved in this work at all, but they read my book, got so motivated that they started volunteering in the local um, prison. And as this person's time came up, they went before the judge um, for their probation meeting and they advocated for him and said that they would take him into their community, house him, help him find work and all these different things that they were uh, willing to let him out early. And he actually did get it let out early. And this church has been walking with him ever since. Wow. (laughs) So what you're saying is that when we live into the way of Jesus and the invitation of God to be people of justice, um, lives can be transformed. Hey man, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, uh, the book can stand for itself and, and should continue to, but what, what's next for you? What other projects are you working on? Well, before we do that, I do want to make one last connection before with what you were just saying. And I think the, the conversation about restorative justice really holds us accountable to what scripture reveals, which is that God chooses to work through broken people. Um, And I think one of the most profound examples of this is that, like, there literally is no gospel. There is no good news without incarcerated people. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I literally mean that. Um, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, who was called to pave the way for Jesus, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Peter, who to, who Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, Samson, Hananiah, the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, all incarcerated people. The Bible falls apart without these men. And this isn't even to mention other men who committed criminal activities who just didn't serve time behind bars, i.e. Moses and David, who both murdered someone. And so I think that this this is so profoundly important for the church to realize that these are the men who God chose to speak and work through then. So if God was so intentional about speaking to and through incarcerated people then, why do we believe that God doesn't have the same desire today? And what is it that we could be missing out on the church today by not believing in God's transformative power and potential to work in and through 
the incarcerated or the formerly incarcerated as they return into society today. And so I just, I want to leave us with that before moving into what's next for me, because for me, that's a really critical question that the church has failed to ask, um, but desperately needs to ask, especially given that, you know, at least four of the books of our Bible were written in the midst of incarceration. Um, and so there is this inherent connection between scripture and incarceration that I don't think that we've really d given due diligence to within our congregations. But when we think about what's next for me, um, have a busy um, winter coming up. Uh, I will be um, keynoting at a number of different conferences. I'll be keynoting at a conference at Calvin College. Uh, it's their second annual restorative justice conference um, in October. In November, I will be keynoting at the Christian Community Development Association's 30th year anniversary conference, uh, where we'll be doing a big honoring of John Perkins and his wife, Vera Mae Perkins. Um, and then I will be a keynoting in December at Urbana, which is a huge uh, missions conference uh, connected with InterVarsity. It'll be about 17,000 people present at the conference. So it'll be a, a busy winter for me. <laughs> Sounds like it. Well, Keep bringing a good and powerful word to uh, all of your audiences. And what a blessing to, uh, to be able to take this message to so many different groups. Um, well, for those that want to stay connected with Dominique, uh, you can visit his website, dominiquegillard.com. Or, of course, follow him on Twitter at ddgilliard. And then, of course, um, just search for him anywhere. Got good work uh, written, featured in Huffington Post and uh, many other um, distributions. Uh, Dominique, thank you for inviting us to re-examine history and to rethink God's justice. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 